Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Now, that's a name that those of you who have a few years under your belt will instantly recognize. Am I right? Yeah? Yeah? A lot of you don't have a lot of years under your belt. That's, that's good. For those of you who might not know, Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a Russian novelist. He was a historian, and he was an outspoken critic of the Soviet Union and the communist government and its cruel system of gulags or, or forced labor camps. And he brought those labor camps and their atrocities to the attention of the world through his writing. He was eventually awarded the Nobel Prize in 1970, and was uh, then expelled from Russia in 1974. He had become so famous because of his writing that they couldn't send him to one of these gulags that he was exposing, so they expelled him from the country. And he found sanctuary in the United States. It was while he was here that he wrote a piece which he titled, People Have Forgotten God. Uh, here's an excerpt from that writing. He said, when I started going to school, other children, egged on by Communist Party members, taunted me for accompanying my mother to the last remaining church in our town. A few years later, I heard a number of older people offer an explanation for the great disasters that had befallen Russia. They would say, people have forgotten God, and that is why this has happened. Well, since then, I have spent nearly 50 years working on the history of the Russian Revolution. In the process, I've collected thousands of personal testimonies, read hundreds of books, and contributed eight volumes of my own. But if I were asked today to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of the ruinous revolution that swallowed up some 60 million of my people, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat, people have forgotten God. What is more, if I were called upon to identify the principal trait of this century, I would be unable to find anything more precise than to reflect once again on how we have lost touch with our Creator. The human conscience, deprived of its divine dimension, has been a determining factor in all the major crimes of this century. Now that's a powerful, pointed, and I would believe an accurate assessment of our times, don't you think? Yeah. Now, I don't know anything really about Solzhenitsyn's spiritual life, whether he had an understanding of God that, that you and I know from the Bible or, or whether or not he believed in salvation through faith in the Lord Jesus apart from, from good works or human performance. But he did diagnose accurately the core issue of our time. He did so with bullseye accuracy. People have forgotten God. But you know what's really interesting? Solzhenitsyn's assessment of our time would have fit equally well in a time of history some 2,900 years ago as a man by the name of Elijah explodes onto the pages of our Bibles. For he too was born into and lived out his life in a time when people, his people, Israel, had, even as in our own day, largely forgotten about God. Now, last week, if you were not able to be a part of our time together, we stepped into a brand new morning study series that is going to allow us to, to share the life, to share the person, the work of one of the Bible's most memorable and really intriguing characters, the Old Testament prophet of Israel by the name of Elijah. 
A moment ago, I said Elijah explodes onto the pages of our Bibles, almost like a firecracker on a quiet summer night. One moment he's not there, and the very next moment in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1, we find him standing before the most wicked king that Israel had ever had up to that time. Do you remember his name from last week? Yeah? What was it? What was it? Ahab, that's right. Along with his wife, Jezebel, they were brazenly attempting to extinguish the name of Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God from Israel's national life through their promotion of idol worship. They had built temples and worship centers throughout the the country to the false gods, Baal and Ashtaroth, so that, that we can read back up in chapter 16 and verse 33, that through those actions, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Now, it took a lot to make that statement possible. But this is who Ahab is. He's an incredibly evil, wicked leader over the people of Israel. But then, boom, I mean, out of nowhere, it seems, Elijah confronts the king in verse 1 of 17. And here again is how it reads one more time. Now Elijah said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now do you remember what Elijah's name means? It means the Lord is my God. That was what his name meant. Every time you said that name, that's what you were declaring. And so even his name is a reminder of a truth that has been forgotten by his nation and certainly forgotten by the leaders of his nation. He shouts, I have a message from the living God before whom I stand, in whose service I am employed, the true God over Israel. I have a message from him. And those were carefully chosen words. Ahab lived and acted and led his nation as if the Lord God was dead and the false god Baal was alive. And Elijah says, no, no, the Lord God of Israel lives and I have a message from him to you. That's pretty gutsy stuff given the fact that Ahab and Jezebel had zero reservation about killing anybody who opposed them. So this took some courage. The message from God? Well, in a nutshell... There's not going to be any rain. There is going to be a drought as severe and as deadly as there has ever been. Not only will it not rain, Elijah says, there won't even be dew on the grass in the morning for as long as God shall determine. Now, church family, we know something about this drought stuff, don't we? Living here in Southern California over the last several years, we know a little bit about drought, especially uh, in these days. And uh, we're in the grip of a, of a serious drought, although when you look outdoors in this moment, it doesn't look like that. But you know what? I mean, this snow is wonderful. It really is wonderful. But uh, we need a lot more of it, right? We really do. You know, we're getting war- warnings and, 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 and water restriction laws are being implemented by our state. Uh, because we've never been in as serious a drought in the recorded history of California as we are in right now. But you know what? Uh, Even if we had more rain, we still need more and more and more just to get back to where we were. However, I would say this, that the drought that we've been experiencing really isn't even worth mentioning compared to what Israel is about to experience. God announces through Elijah 
0% humidity for as long as God says so. 0% humidity. That's a serious drought. So, why a drought by God? Why would that be the vehicle to, to rock the world of his rebellious people and her evil king who have forgotten about him? Why would God choose to use a drought? That's a fair question. But it's not hard to figure out the answer for why that would be true, especially when we realize that the false god Baal was the god of agriculture. He's the god of produce from the earth. He's the god who is the supposed giver of rain and snow that waters the earth. And Ashtaroth, the goddess, uh, she's the goddess of fertility. She's the goddess who makes things grow. And so what better way to challenge the power of these false gods and confront the lie of King Ahab and Jezebel that Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel, no longer matters and he's, and he's really of no consequence. What better way to challenge that lie than by calling for a drought so severe that it will become the standard by which all droughts are going to be measured? If the God, of Eli, that God, uh, the God that Elijah serves, if that God can close up the skies, uh, then who's really in control? Baal's supposed to be in control. But who's in control if God closes up the skies and brings zero humidity to the land? Well, it's not very long before old Ahab begins to notice that, that there are no clouds. No clouds in the sky. Day after day after day, crops in the field uh, were withering. The hills are taking on this dusty brown hue. The stores of grain are being depleted. And the cattle are looking mighty thin. This would, according to God's word through Elijah, go on for years. Now, we know it will go on for three and a half years because we know the rest of the story. But they don't know that in this moment. No rain, not even dew on the grass in the morning. Well, it's easy enough for us to see what God is doing with King Ahab and unbelieving Israel through this terrible drought. He's, he's really putting the smack down on those gods, isn't he? He's going to bring them to account. By this hardship, he's going to bring his people back to himself. And it's, it's a great story. It unfolds in chapter 18 in a marvelous way. Who's in control? Well, God is in control. And we're going to get to see that. But in this moment, what about Elijah? What about Elijah? What is God wishing to do with him during these years of drought? Well, the answer to that question is really found in verses 2 through 16 that we just read a moment ago. Now, what we might expect or what I would expect, let's just say if, if I were writing this script in this moment, it was me writing these words about Elijah, uh, and, and, and Elijah has just made this powerful entrance and he's delivered this sober message to the king about this drought, and, and now he's out in front, he's, he's visible. My thought would be that God would keep him there. My thought would be, well, God would put him up front and center so that he can deliver thundering messages that will kindle a renewed faith in God on the part of, of the people as this grip of the drought just intensifies. And, and, and Elijah's going to be right there and say, this is from God, this is from God, this is from God. Turn back to him. That's what I would do if I was writing the script. I'd keep Elijah right up front. However, as we already know, 
This is not what happens. In fact, the very opposite is what actually happens. God does not keep Elijah in a place of prominence and high visibility in this time. Instead, he directs him out to the desert wastes of eastern Jordan by a little brook called Kareth. Now, it might look like it should be Cherith in your Bible, Cherith, C-H, but it's actually C-H with a sound of a K, like, like chronic. Um, you would use that, that it's chronic with a, with a K. The name Kareth means trench or separation. An isolated desert stream where Elijah is told to go and there he'll be cared for by, of all things, birds, ravens. And then after that, he'll be sent to a widow woman in a little town called Zarephath, completely outside the nation of Israel. It's up in the north. It's above the borders of Israel. And there he's going to be cared for by a widow who is herself about to eat her last meal with her son uh, before the two of them die of starvation because of this severe drought that Elijah's words have brought upon Israel. Unlikely places for God's servant to be, do you think? Kareth and Zarephath? You know, our first blush might be to say, yeah, that's kind of weird. But as we're about to see, Kareth and Zarephath will prove to be essential as God will use these two places as part of Elijah's training, as part of his preparation for even greater service that God has in mind for him. These two locales, Kareth and Zarephath are about to become classrooms for Elijah with God as his teacher. Granted, they may not look like classrooms in the traditional sense, but they really are. And it is in such classrooms as these that Elijah and you and I, I might add, learn some of the most important lessons we will ever learn about our growing relationship with our God. They are very important times for Elijah and for us. And I'm really grateful that the Holy Spirit uh, has recorded and preserved the brook and the ravens at Kareth and the widow of Zarephath for us because they're going to go a long way toward answering for us the question, why is it that God uh, sometimes does these things in our life that, that really make no sense to us? In fact, they're, just, they're, they're difficult. There are situations, there are, there are circumstances, there are things that happen in, to you in, or to those around you, things that happen to me that at the time and in the moment seem as uh, they're just poorly timed from our perspective. They're, they're unnecessary situations, they're unreasonable, they're scary, they're, they're hard, they're painful, they're hurtful. And we find ourselves there and our faith is seriously challenged. Our relationship with our God is tested. Can I trust my God in the drought times of my life? That's really what these two moments are going to help us to discover more about. You and I, brothers and sisters in Jesus, we have Kareths and we have Zarephaths in our life. Places not of our choosing. Places that are hard and difficult, but essential. They are classrooms for learning to trust God to rely upon him, depend fully upon him so that we're going to be more effective for him and in our service for him. Now, as we take a closer look at these two moments in Elijah's life, the brook and the widow, there are no less than four common threads, as you see them there on your note page, that tie 
these two stories, these two moments together and turn them really into one powerful classroom for Elijah. And as God teaches him here in these moments, perhaps we can just slip quietly into the back of the classroom, take a seat, and just observe Elijah and learn with him as he goes to these places. Now, what is the first common thread that ties these two stories together? Well, if you notice there on your note page, there is a, a, this common thread of a clear command from God in both stories. In verses 2 and 3, we read again, And the word of the Lord came to him. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kerith. And then if you look at verses 8 and 9, the same thing. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Arise, go to Zarephath. The word of the Lord came to him. These are commands. These are commands from the Lord to Elijah. And and in one sense, it must have been a relief to him to get these words from God. Here Elijah was. He's confronting King Ahab, whose anger must have glowed red hot when, when he delivered this message about the drought to the king. And no doubt he was wondering, so, so, so what do I do now, Lord? I've, I've delivered the message. Now what? What, what are we going to do? What are you going to do? What am I going to do? Tell me. And God does. But to Kareth, Elijah asks, to Kareth? Why there of all places? Now this is an, an actual picture of the Kareth ravine in Jordan today. This is exactly what it would look like if you were to go there today. And we could just hear Elijah saying, doesn't God know that it's a wasteland? That it's, it's, it's jagged terrain? That, that nothing grows out there? It's just a little stream in a place that is parched even when there isn't a drought. This is not the place to be. You can imagine Elijah saying that. He must have wondered about that, just as you and I do when God moves us in directions that at the moment look like steps backward, moves leading us into maybe lonely places, jobless places, physical affliction places, relational struggle places. God, we ask, why Kareth? Why Zarephath? Don't you know about those places, what they're like? Well, in Elijah's case, the first reason we know for why he is sent to these places is for his protection. Notice again, verse 3. Depart from here and turn eastward and do what? Hide yourself by the brook Kareth. Hide yourself from what? (laughs) From Ahab. You bet. Hide yourself from an angry king. Hide yourself from a, a bitter and afflicted people who would be looking for someone to blame for all the pain and struggle that is in their life as a result of this drought. Hide yourself from the people. Hide yourself from Ahab's wife Jezebel who would love to see Elijah dead the way that she's killed others who have remained loyal to the Lord. Hide yourself. And Zarephath was also for Elijah's protection little tiny town uh, outside of Ahab's rule up in the north, above the northern border of Israel, out of his reach. So protection was certainly part of why God takes him to these places. But I suspect it is the least of God's reasons for taking Elijah to Kareth and Zarephath. He was taking Elijah there mostly for preparation. 
Elijah was clearly a man who's filled with the Spirit of God. He has a very strong faith. That's clear. But God knew that he was not ready for some of the really great challenges that he was yet to face. There were things for him yet to learn. Things like loyal depend, uh, total dependence upon the Lord, complete reliance and trust in what God says, patience, waiting for God's timing, learning how to handle isolation, learning how to handle rejection, learning how to face hardships as the price for remaining loyal to God. All of these are lessons that needed to be learned. And time spent with God in this, these, these special custom-made classrooms seems to be a principle that God delights in. He takes us into these places so that we learn the lessons that will make us more effective for him. And, and, and just think about that with me for a second. Think about some of the other Bible characters that we know. Uh, does God not use this principle as well? I mean, think about Joseph, for example. Joseph will become second only to the Pharaoh in authority in Egypt. But what happens before that? Well, he spends many years as a slave, doesn't he? in Potiphar's house. And then after that, he spends two years in prison for crimes that he does not commit. Why? Well, those were classrooms to teach Joseph, to help him learn to trust God and and to trust God's timing and purposes, even when he doesn't understand what's going on. Or or think about Moses. Moses was, was the one God would call to lead the nation of Israel out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. But before that happens, what... Where does he go? Well, he spends 40 years in the desert leading sheep. That's the classroom. Lead sheep before you lead my people. Before the Apostle Paul's great missionary travels, his church planting exploits, there's going to be 14 years of isolation, 14 years of preparation of Paul in Arabia by the Lord. That was God's classroom for him. Still ahead for Elijah will be this incredible scene on Mount Carmel in chapter 18. He's best known for that moment where he'll call down fire from heaven that will crush the credibility of the Baal, uh, of the, the, of Baal and, and Ashtaroth and, and the worship of the people will be turned back to the Lord. But man, before Carmel, there has to be Kareth. There has to be Zarephath. Because while maybe not pleasant, they help prepare us. And God never calls us into his service for his sake without preparing us first. Agreed? Yeah. So both Kareth and Zarephath share this common thread of God's clear command. Elijah, you go. Go to these two places that you might not choose, but I've chosen for you because there are lessons for you to learn. And then notice also that both Kareth and Zarephath share the common thread of a promise. A promise from God. Look at verse 4. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to do what? To feed you there. And in verse 9, arise, go to Zarephath. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to do what? To feed you. The promise is, you go, and I'll meet your need. That's the promise. You go, I will meet your need. Now, brother, sister, as as those who through faith in Jesus alone belong to God, we, we are by faith in Jesus, his treasured possession right this moment, we can be sure of this. This is a truth, that if he moves us in a particular direction, he will also make sure that we have what we need to carry out the plans and purposes he's called us to. 
Would you agree with that? Is that just true some of the time? That's true always, isn't it? That is absolutely true. But, you know, if we're honest, we sometimes forget this promise from the Lord. We don't move when God tells us to move. We, we hesitate or we, 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 we doubt or we're afraid. Now, Elijah doesn't seem to struggle in that way here. God had given him a command and, and made a promise to him. And, and he says, I'm going to provide for you. Go. And, and Elijah goes. The lesson for Elijah is not whether God's going to provide for him so much as how God's going to provide. That's the lesson for Elijah here. God always reserves the right to determine how he'll provide. True? (laughs) He reserves that right. In Elijah's case, his provision from the Lord is going to come in the most remarkable ways. First of all, from ravens, and second, from a widow. And neither of those would you and I have ever come up with as ways to provide for Elijah. Now, to the Jew, the raven was a detestable bird. In fact, ravens made the list of unclean animals that God mentions in Leviticus chapter 11. Jews in Elijah's day wanted nothing to do with these nasty birds. They were scavengers. They they ate dead things. They were always outside the city dump in great numbers, making that that hideous squawk. You know the squawk, right? Because we we have these, don't we? We have these birds here in Idlewild as well. And, and, And what do these birds do? They scavenge for themselves, don't they? And they never share. Have you ever watched them? They never share. But God will make them Elijah's food suppliers. And and really, it's a great lesson for Elijah that in the midst of this terrible famine, God will provide for him by by, by a supernatural means. He's going to change the nature of these ravens to fit his purpose. Now, now Elijah's going to still have to stoop down and drink the water from the brook. Naturally, he'll do that. But day by day, the supply of food is going to come to him supernaturally thanks to these ravens whose nature God is going to change. He's easily able to break the rules, isn't he? God does it all the time. He breaks the rules. And, and, and Elijah's going to need that lesson, that, Lord, you, you will break the rules. You'll, you'll, you'll break out of the boundaries of what, what I know in order to accomplish your purposes. That's a great lesson that he needs to know going forward. And how about this widow at Zarephath? Is there a more unlikely person than this widow to meet the needs of Elijah when this drought and this famine have come on full bore? This widow, really? But this was God's plan. Now, a widow in Elijah's day really had it rough. The word widow was really synonymous with the words poorest of the poor. But in this time of unprecedented drought and famine, even those words don't really convey the, the real situation. As, he, as Elijah goes to Zarephath and meets this widow, she and her son are about to do what? We're told. They're about to die, right? They're about to eat their last meal because there's nothing. There's no food left except this little bit that she has. They're about to eat their last meal and die. As the story unfolds, we learn that God provides again in a supernatural way Day by day, the flour and the oil, 
that, that, that Elijah is going to need in order to live, but also the widow and her son. Both Kareth and Zarephath are wonderful examples to us, for us, of God using really the most unlikely things to fulfill his promise to provide for his people when his people do what he calls them to do. Elijah was learning to trust. Trust in his God to provide. But church family, don't miss this. There's a, there's a very important little word here that we could easily jump right over if we were reading these stories. It's found in verse 4. It's found again in verse 9. It's the little five-letter word, there. T-H-E-R-E. There. God says in verse 4, I have commanded the ravens to feed you where? There. And in verse 9, arise, go to Zarephath. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Now, I have that word there uh, highlighted and circled and underlined in my Bible so that I never miss this the next time I come back here. The promises of God's provision would be made only when Elijah went there. When he went there where he was told to go, and he did what he was told to do. When he would do that, when he would go there, the provision would be there for him. What if Elijah had thought, well, you know, since God is pulling me out of the limelight for this season of drought and famine, I guess I'll just drop on down to Egypt and sit out this famine on the banks of the Nile River. And then when it's over, I'll come back. Do you suppose the provision would have been there? No, because that was not there was it? That was somewhere else. And God says, I don't, I'm not going to provide for you over there. I will provide for you right here. This is where I want you. I will feed you there, Elijah. I will take care of you there. Go, and I'll provide. Well, that brings us then to the third common thread that Kareth and Zarephath share in these two stories, and that is they both share the obedience of Elijah. Verse 5, So he went and he did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook. And in verse 10, so he arose and he went to Zarephath. Obedience was immediate. It was swift. There's not a hint of dialogue. There's not a hint of excuses for why he can't go and do what God has called him to do. Perhaps he wondered what in the world could be at Kareth for him. What could be at Zarephath for him? But if he does wonder, he doesn't share that. He just obeyed. But he's no dummy. He knew that Kareth was a place of barren emptiness. He knew it was a lonely place. No friends, no family out there. He truly would be living in a place that lived up to its name. Remember I told you the name of the place? It means isolation. It means separation. That's where he's going to go. And he'll go. Because God said, go. And Zarephath, well, he knew about that too. Its name means the refining place, the smelting place. Zarephath was a place where they refined metals. They melted down metals. Well, those two names fit well with what God was wanting to accomplish in his life. Going to separate him out, separate him out from from the idol-worshiping culture of his day and and ask him to stand. And at the same time, he's going to refine him, strengthen his trust in the Lord so that he'll be ready for the next thing. Maybe Elijah knew something that we often want to forget when it comes to God's word. 
and his will in our lives. He just obeyed. He didn't question. He just obeyed. And what he learned was that, you know, when it comes to God's word, there's no voting. There's no voting. Uh, God doesn't put out options. He says, this is what I want. And what is his expectation? Well, this is what we do. This is what we do. And again, this is a lesson that we learn at Kareth and we learn at Zarephath. Any of us in this room can tell of times in our life when we didn't understand what God was doing in our life, why he was moving us in this direction, what he was up to. Is that true? In your life, in mine, there are those times when we just don't see what God is doing. Doors of opportunity closed on us that we thought were tremendous. Why did that close? We don't know. People in our life passed away when we could not bear to be without them, but they passed away. Why? Relationships that we thought would never be shaken are undone, and we don't understand. Hell took a nosedive just when we were feeling so good and thinking that things were finally coming together, and we say, oh, my Lord and my God, I don't want to go this way. I don't, I don't want Kareth. I don't want Zarephath. In fact, perhaps this morning you would say, in, in, in true honest uh, assessment, you would say, man, I'm in Kareth right now. That's what my life is all about right now. I'm at Zarephath right now. I'm at Kareth, a lonely place. I'm at Zarephath, a refining place. There's a reason why you're there. There are things to be learned that you can't learn anywhere else. And that's what these two places remind us of. A clear command from the Lord, joined to a promise, followed by simple obedience. And all of this brings out the fourth common thread that these two stories share, and that is God's faithful supply. Verse 6, And the ravens brought him bread in the, and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. What is that? That's supply. Verses 11 to 16, the widow's last remaining flour and oil, they're not exhausted till the drought is done. Verse 14, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. What is that? Well, that's God's supply. The ravens came, and the brook flowed. And when those had served their purpose, the flour and the oil appeared daily to feed Elijah and the widow and her son. God faithfully supplied. Can I ask you, brother, sister, have you ever been visited by God's ravens? Has it ever happened in your life? You ever been visited by the ravens of God? You know, if we gave... Uh, each of us enough time, my guess is we would all come up with a, a yes to that question. We've all, been, we've all been fed by the ravens. We've all experienced the supply of the, of the flour and the oil when we thought there was, no, there was no supply. As you were seeking the Lord's will for your life, you were striving to live obediently for him. He brought his supply to you in a way that you knew this had to come from the Lord, right? Can you tell stories like that? Does that happen today? It happens today, doesn't it? It happened in Elijah's day, but does it happen in our day? Sure it does. It happened to me, and it happened to Lisa. 
my wife. In fact, it was his Ravens church family that brought us to California and ultimately to this church. And I'm serious when I say that. Lisa and I were newly married back in 1979. We had together sensed that God was calling us into some form of full-time vocational ministry. We didn't know what that looked like exactly. We just knew that the call was upon our lives. And essential to that call was, was going to be the need to go to, to seminary for some training. And so we determined in Albuquerque, New Mexico, we were living as newlyweds. We determined that when we had saved up the first year's tuition to go to seminary, then we would pack up all of our stuff. We would head out for ca- to California, and, and, and I would start school. That was the plan. Now, for us, that meant setting aside $25 a month towards tuition. Well, that was all we could manage. And even that was a stretch, $25 a month. Had we continued with that strategy, Lisa and I would still be in New Mexico, and we would not be in ministry today because $25 a month would not have kept pace with rising tuition costs. Here's the thing. Not long after making that commitment, I would say within days, weeks perhaps, as I recall, we, we received a check in the mail from Lisa's aging grandmother who knew nothing about our plans. Nothing. And that check came unannounced. It, it was unexpected. She simply desired to share her state with her grandchildren while she was still living. The check was enough to cover not only the first year's tuition, but years two and three as well. Was Lisa's grandma one of God's ravens? We believe so, though we would never have told her that. I don't think she would would appreciate being called a raven, but she was. She truly was. Do you have your own raven story? You, you need to have one. You need to think through the, the, the story of your life and find those moments and realize that what happened to Elijah is not unique to Elijah. God has done that for you just as he's done it for Lisa and me. The ravens come and the, and the flower and oil flow when we are trusting God right where we are and listening for what he wants us to do and be. He will supply when we're walking in obedience to what he's called us to. In fact, his faithful supply is often his confirmation that we're exactly where we're supposed to be. That, too, is true for Lisa and me, because here we are, 33 years later, right where we're supposed to be. But the ravens helped make that possible. Elijah knew that he was right where he was supposed to be, confronting a wicked king in a time when his country and his culture had forgotten about God. Through Cherith, through Kareth and Zarephath, these were places where he would, he would learn more about his God. They were classrooms where he would learn to, to trust God's promises and rely on his faithful supply, where he would be protected and prepared from ex- for some extraordinary moments that, well, he can't even imagine yet. Kareth and Zarephath are also where you and I learn what we can learn nowhere else where we learn that God faithfully supplies what we need while he protects and prepares us for what he's planned next for us to be. Such places really are his special classrooms, and we really should be thankful for them. Yes? Even though they're hard, we should be thankful for them. Let's pray together.
Well, thank you, Heavenly Father, for the gift of these, these words from your holy word. We thank you for reminders uh, to us today. And, and, and Lord, for those who might be right this moment in Kareth or in Zarephath, hard places, really difficult places, I would ask that you might be especially kind in comforting and, and encouraging those who are in such places, encouraging them regarding your call, your, your care, your protection, your provision, your supply. I pray that you would help them to trust you, to know that the ravens will come, that the oil and the, and the flour will be supplied in your perfect time. I thank you that I can ask you for that for my friends. For those of us who might not be in such places, help us, Lord, to tuck these truths away because we will be. We just know that we will be. That's how life works in a fallen world here. But thank you that you are in the middle of all of that with us. Thank you that we really can trust you in our drought times. We tell you we love you, Lord, but only because you loved us first. Through Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen.